The good news of the gospel is both reversed and then redoubled as the Nephites suffer three days of darkness and destruction before the arrival of that long-awaited day in which they finally met their Savior. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you so much for joining me for Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. We have a question, an email question today from Debbie. Debbie writes, in Helaman 10, 16 through 17, it says, For he was taken by the Spirit and conveyed away out of the midst of them. Speaking, obviously, about the prophet Nephi, the son of Helaman. And it came to pass that thus he did go forth in the Spirit from multitude to multitude, declaring the word of God. Debbie asks, was he a translated being at this point? I know there's a possibility that there may be more translated beings than the obvious ones. What are your thoughts? And do you think the three wise men may have been translated beings? So it's interesting, uh, Debbie, thank you for your question, that the prophet is taken by the Spirit exactly as Jesus is described as having been taken by the Spirit. So my answer is, I guess, uh, it wouldn't be necessary for him to have been translated because Jesus, before his death, uh, Jesus was not translated, by the way, Uh Translation is not the ultimate symbol of righteousness. Jesus was killed and resurrected. And so translation is what happens when God has a need for someone to maintain a physical body before they are capable of being resurrected. And so I can't answer it except to say that I don't think it's necessarily true about Nephi just because he was conveyed by the Spirit and because he was protected. God can protect a living man the way he protected Jesus, uh, a living man or woman, in that same way without having to take him beyond the veil. Were the wise men translated beings? I actually believe they were not, and that is because they had too many questions. They went to Herod. Uh, Translated beings are probably in direct communication with God, would be my guess. Not knowing about these things, this is a guess. But uh, to go to Herod and say, how can we find the king of the Jews, would be, to me, seem would seem to me to be outside the character of what a translated being, the the answers that they might need. And so uh, it may have been that they were one day translated later. Uh, for those of you, <laughs> for I just realized that there may be those of you who are listening to this podcast for the first time who are a little bit lost, but uh, trans- a translated being is, is a being that is taken beyond the veil and who is blessed to not have to partake of death. We have modern revelation that this is what happened to the prophet Moses, even though in the Bible he's described as being buried by the hand of the Lord. We believe that means that he was taken up, Elijah. And they were, their bodies were required before they died because they had to appear in the flesh to Jesus to restore keys unto him. And only then could they die and be resurrected, only after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because Jesus was the first fruits of them that slept. As to your final question, Debbie, could there be more translated beings than we have than we than the obvious ones? Well, we know there were entire an, there was an entire city of them in in Enoch city of Zion, and so there are any number of angels that have been either resurrected or translated walking among us. I believe this with all my heart every day, whether those angels have a physical body or they appear to us and we don't ever touch them. 
uh, I believe that God is interact that God is sending His messengers to interact with us on a regular basis, and that all of us have come in contact with these beings without being aware of it at one point or another. And I also believe that constantly we have spiritual attendants beside us. If there is any chance that we may accept the truth or believe in Jesus Christ, then God will foster that. If you are building a fire out in the wilderness and you get a little spark going and it catches in the tinder, the first thing you do is put your hands around it and blow on it. And that is what God is doing to all of us with the spark of our faith. He is caring for it and protecting it and nurturing it by sending his servants to watch over us. Uh, this is the promise in the Doctrine and Covenants, which is that his angels we round about us to bear us up. So thank you for that question, Debbie. Another question comes from Lee. Lee asks, who do you feel Nephi understood to be his audience? I know people in the church understand the Book of Mormon to be written for our day, and Mormon and Moroni seem to directly indicate that. But Nephi wasn't part of that project, and the small plates of Nephi were a very late addition to Mormon's project tacked onto the back. It seems like Nephi had the primary audience as his descendants. Perhaps secondarily, the Lamanites, and possibly late in his project, he realized the Gentiles would also have access to the records. And as a secondary question, Lee asks, what do we do with scriptures that are not directly addressed to us? So Lee, thank you for your question. And I don't think that Nephi's primary audience were modern day people. He actually says, after he experiences this marvelous vision of the what will become the future history of his people, then he declares it his purpose to, to cry repentance unto them. Now that includes modern day descendants of Nephi and his brethren. But that doesn't mean that uh, that that the modern day descendants are the primary uh, audience, and certainly doesn't mean that the rest of us who may or may not be de- descendants of Nephi are his audience. Now he saw us, and he definitely wanted. He knew that we would receive some of his words, and he wanted to mention that. But I think you're correct that he did indeed have his descendants as his audience, and this was very helpful, in fact, because. At the time, in the lesson that we're going to study today, for example, at the time when the prophecies were fulfilled, then the Nephites who had read their scriptures could look back and say, I wish we'd repented because we had been warned about this. Warned by prophets like Nephi, Nephi the son of Lehi, who came out from Jerusalem. There's several Nephites that we've been talking about lately. But we've been warned by Nephi and everyone since that these days were, this day was coming, this day of destruction was coming, and we didn't pay heed. And there would have been nothing for them to pay heed to if they didn't have prophets speaking specifically to them. And that was Mormon's great role. Mormon stepped in between the prophets, the ancient Nephite prophets, who were speaking to their own people, and he interpreted their words and redirected all of those words directly at us. And uh, to answer your second question, Lee, what, of what use to Latter-day Saints are scriptures, and he wasn't asking this from a cynical perspective, but of what use to Latter-day Saints are scriptures that weren't directed at us? And I think we have a little bit of a, it's been a luxury, we've been coddled maybe, because the Book of Mormon was written for our day, and we don't have to work as hard, therefore, to understand it and to receive the messages there. But the works of scripture that are in the Bible were almost without exception written for the people of their own time. And therefore, we have to work a little harder to adapt their meaning to us. Nevertheless, uh, it is almost as profitable. I mean, obviously, God speaking directly to our time is the most profitable thing we can read. But it is almost as profitable to read scriptures that were for an ancient people. Because, number one, 
God's word never changes. And number two, we see that God's message for his people really is eternal. And number three, we see that the physical and historical events that happen to the people have their spiritual analogs as well that happen to ancient people. They have their spiritual analogs in our own daily struggle to repent and believe. In other words, the people listening to the prophets became object lessons in their own right, and later prophets were able to interpret that. Those messages have not been lost, even though they're buried under the layers of geography, language, culture, uh, and time. And once we can penetrate those layers, that message is there as bright as anything in the Book of Mormon. And so I appreciate your question, Lee. It's a wonderful question. And I hope all of you who are listening, if you have questions for which you'd like a scriptural answer, send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, would like to spread the word, let your friends know, make sure to subscribe. Leave us a five-star rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Also on gospeltoctrine.com, our website, you'll find a page for each of our episodes, and you'll also find uh, a donations link where you can support the work that we do, and we'd like to thank everyone who has made a generous donation. And with that, we will discuss today's lesson, 3 Nephi chapters 8 through 11, Arise and Come Forth Unto Me. And today's lesson is the culmination, is the climax of the entire Book of Mormon. It is what we've been waiting for, what the Nephites have been waiting for since the beginning. In 3 Nephi 11, we have the account of when Jesus Christ finally appears to his people and confirms to them the words of the prophets that they've received, the gospel that they've received. But we're going to get ahead of ourselves a little bit. We're going to begin with chapter 8. If you remember, chapter 3 Nephi chapters 1 through 7 are the, an account of the Nephites during the time of Jesus Christ's mortal ministry. They didn't have, or mortal life, they didn't have... Uh, direct confirmation that Jesus Christ was alive, other than that sign of the day, night, and day, as if there had been no night. Other than that sign, there was no confirmation that Jesus was alive. People were able to deny it. And in fact, able they were capable of great wickedness. Then they'd gone back and forth during those chapters until in chapter 7, they became a people of, of almost overpowering wickedness. And if you remember, Jacob was the leader of these Gadiantans who had taken his people and tried to uh, flee into the north country, and that's where they ended up. And the Gadiantans then founded a society, and you're going to see what happened to them here in these chapters. But the, uh, the rest of the Nephites had broken up into tribes. Their government, the laws that protected everyone and kept them all equal, those laws that had been established by Mosiah, had broken up, and now they're a bunch of tribal leaders and we can assume that they, their laws, their legal systems are in various uh, levels of unrighteousness depending on who you ended up with, being in a tribe with. And then it's described as being almost exactly 33 years later, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the time frame, that this great storm begins to be seen upon the face of the earth. So here we are in chapter 8, 3 Nephi chapter 8, reading about the storm that begins. And the storm is so severe, it's the kind of storm that, of course, no one among the Nephites had ever seen. It's not the kind of storm that uh, they could have ever seen. It's not a once-in-a-lifetime storm. It's not a generational storm. It is a once-in-history storm. Uh, this was the kind of destruction that, had it happened uh, in, a, in a civilization where we have a more... A, a developed historical tradition, we all would have read about this storm in many places other than scripture. But because the Book of Mormon is the only Nephite record to which we have modern day access, 
Uh, this is the only place we can read about it. But this storm is the worst storm of all time. And the only thing that maybe comes close, you can read in the book of Genesis about uh, in the days of Peleg, I believe it was, that the earth was divided up. So uh, I don't know exactly what form that took. Uh, and maybe um, the, the storm that buried the earth in the days of Noah. But that was not accompany, accompanied by earthquakes and fires from heaven. So honestly, no storm had been seen like it in, uh, in scriptural, spiritual, or human history. Now, before the storm arises, there were people who were looking for this sign. Uh, Samuel, you remember, he first gave the sign that there would be the sign of Christ's birth, the night that was bright all night long, a perfect sign for Christ coming into the world. Because visibility, and nighttime is a time when visibility is normally limited, but visibility continued throughout the night because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And the sign given for the end of Christ's life was this three days of darkness that the time between his death and his resurrection, no one would be able to see anything, at least among the Nephites. And that was also a very appropriate sign. I want to go back to something we we talked about in the lesson on Abinadi, which was the meaning of the word gospel. If you remember that, I equated the messenger with the message. Uh, We talked about one of the messengers that brought news of a victory in battle to King David. And by looking over on the mountainside, the King David's attendant was able to see which messenger it was. And David said, he's a good messenger, so he brings a good message. In other words, this messenger wasn't willing to to run to David unless he was bringing good news. And David would have known, had it been a different messenger, he would have known he was bringing a different message. And from a distance, they could recognize this runner and know that he was bringing good news. And in that way, the messenger became the message. And in fact, uh, we talked about how in Hebrew, that's kind of the equivalent. So what, when is it? when are good tidings spoken of in the Old Testament? In a few places, most of them in the book of Isaiah and One of the most prominent is in Isaiah chapter 40, when Isaiah tells Zion to get up into the high mountain and say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. So this is the good tidings. This is the the glad news that uh, the prophet of the Lord will bring, which is behold your God. So when God appears, that is the culmination of the gospel. And anyone bringing that message is a good messenger, is the mebasher in in, Israel. Old in Hebrew, in Biblical Hebrew, which has been literally translated into Latin as Evangelion or Euangelion, and then into Old English as God's spell, and then into Modern English as Gospel. But it means glad tidings, good news, or even good messenger. And the reason I bring all of this up is to show that now what is about to happen is that the Ability to behold anything is about to be taken away from the Nephites. So if the good news is behold your God, then the opposite of the good news is a total blindness among the people. Now all of these physical events, these manifestations of the wrath of God, they have their spiritual counterparts. But if the good news is that God is here among us, we can see him. He has finally come to earth to rule and reign. And that is the good news that is spoken up by Isaiah then the bad news or the opposite or the absence of the gospel would be that we cannot see our God. And in fact, we can't see anything. We are incapable of witnessing either God or his messengers. That's what, that's what form this storm takes. As you read these three chapters, the account of this storm, it's a storm such that n- not even a fire can be kindled. 
they had wood that was perfectly suited for building a fire, and yet none of it could be ignited. No light could be made, and no light could be seen. No light arrived from the sky, the sun, moon, and stars were all invisible for three entire days, and no light could be kindled, uh, candles could not be burned, and therefore people lived in a state of utter darkness for three days. Now, this is the exact opposite of being able to behold your God. So I don't know that this was an intentional parallel on the part of Mormon to draw our minds to the fact that this is the absence of the gospel. But I, I believe that this was God trying to teach his people that when there is no gospel, there is true blindness. And similarly, when the light of the world has been removed, then obviously no earthly light can suffice to show us anything. Before we go any further into the nature of the storm, I want to talk a little bit about the timing of the storm. Early in chapter 8, uh, it says that 30 year, 33 years had passed away since or, or the 33rd year had passed away since the giving of the sign of the birth of Jesus. And then in the fourth day of the first month of the 34th year, then this storm arose. And at this time, people were looking forward to this because they had had prophecies about how long it would take. And those prophecies had probably a rough amount uh, or, or a rough estimate instead of an exact date. And if the if the date had been exact, there wouldn't have been what are called doubts and disputations among them. And so therefore, it, were only, it was only the faithful who were still watching. Now let's talk about this 33 years. Uh, a lot of Latter-day Saints take this to mean that the, the lifespan of Jesus Christ was exactly 33 years and four days. Now that is one possible meaning of this passage. But uh, I, I actually don't think it's exactly what it's saying. So let's go back a little bit. If you remember that early on in the book of Third Nephi, it talks about how nine years had passed away. And then they started reckoning their time after the sign of Christ's birth. So they didn't on the day that, that this night was bright and then the next day they knew Christ had been born. They didn't on that day everyone get together and say, hey, let's change our calendar. Let's start reckoning time from this day. Starting today, this is January 1st, you know, year zero, right? They didn't do it that way. What they did was nine years later, they looked back and they said, this really should be a start of a new calendar for us. So that was nine years ago. Let's call this year nine instead of year 100, which is counting from the reign of the judges. Let's call it year nine from the time of the birth of Christ. And everyone agreed. And then that was how they reckoned their calendar. In the old world in the Roman Empire, a similar thing happened, although it was hundreds of years after the birth of Christ. And at that point, there was some doubt, there was some ambiguity about exactly which year that Christ had been born in. I, I make this point because in the Roman Empire, when they changed the Roman calendar, they did not then go back and change the months. They, they didn't reor, reorient everything around a certain day and then say, we're going to have the first day of the year be the day on which Jesus Christ was born. Uh, instead, it was just done on a yearly level. Now, if the Nephites did something similar, then it could be that uh, Jesus Christ was born or the sign of his birth was given any time during that year, which later on became the first year in the Nephite calendar when they began to change their reckoning. So it may be that they changed it to the exact date, but what seems more likely to me from the way I read uh, the first chapter of Third Nephi is that they changed just the year. Now, one of the reasons behind uh, 
asking this question is, when was Jesus Christ born? We don't know exactly from the scriptures. There's a little little bit of controversy about it in the Christian world. Uh, The two contenders for those dates, well, the three contenders for those dates are first, December 25th, which most scholars agree is not the date that Christ was born on. It was probably a festival decreed to cover up an earlier pagan festival around the winter solstice. And because the days are starting to get longer on December 25th, finally, after a long winter, and then there's, we see that there's light at the end of the tunnel uh, around that time, around late December, then that's a perfect time to celebrate the light, of the, the light of the world. And that is true, but it's only symbolic. So when was Jesus Christ actually born? One argument is that he was, in fact, born right around the time he died, which is the Jewish festival of Passover. And one argument for this is that the shepherds were abiding in their in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Why would shepherds watch over their flocks by night? Obviously, they have to keep them from predators. And if they're out there uh, grazing all day and all night, and the shepherds, they don't want to bring their flocks home each night, then that's what they'll do. But why wouldn't they just bring them home and put them in a, a corral or put them, you know, fence them off? from these predators. And why would they watch them all night? Well, around the time of Passover, the Jewish population as a whole made its way to Jerusalem, and each of them wanted a firstborn lamb that had been uh, born from its mother without blemish, and all of these prescribed attributes of this lamb had to be met. And the shepherds had to watch in case any lamb was born During the night, they had to know which lamb was the firstborn, and they had to mark it, and then they had to bring that to the temple. This was a very valuable business, and those lambs who were firstborn were much more valuable than any other lambs. That's one explanation for why the Jews would, or why these shepherds would have been out watching their, the Jewish shepherds would have been out watching their flocks by night. Another calculation is that we can figure out when uh, Zacharias, the son of John the Baptist, would have been working in the temple, and then we have from the book of Luke an account that Zacharias then goes home and soon after his wife becomes pregnant at at long last. And then six months after uh, John the Baptist is conceived, then Jesus is conceived. And so doing the math on that um, and knowing that Zacharias would have served his time in the temple around June, then 15 months later is when Jesus would have been born. And therefore, that puts the birth of Jesus around the High Holy Days or another festival in the Jewish calendar, which is in September, possibly late September. So those are the two real scholarly uh, interpretations or guesses as to when Jesus would have been born. And my point is that both of those are possible, given what we read in the Book of Mormon, because we know that it's about 33 years later. But there does seem to be some ambiguity whether the Nephites changed their calendar on the very day of the sign or in the year of the sign. So that's enough about timing. Let's talk about what's happening around the time of the storm. In verse 4, it says, There began to be great doubtings and disputations among the people, notwithstanding so many signs had been given. Now, if we go back one verse, we read, The people began to look with great earnestness for the sign which had been given. So these are faithful people. It's interesting because they've been watching for 33 years, or 38 years actually, because uh, Samuel came five years before the birth of Jesus. So they've been watching for 38 years, and now there are great doubtings and disputations. And doubtings are the people who don't believe that Samuel was a prophet at all, or maybe he made a mistake, 
or whatever, this prophecy will not be fulfilled. And disputations, this is the way I interpret these two words. Disputations are the people who do believe and they're disagreeing about details. And uh, I just want to bring those two things up because they're still going on today. So doubtings are what are the people who are not really part of the conversation and they uh, belittle the entire conversation for even taking place. Disputations are for people who believe in Jesus, believe in the prophet Samuel, and they want to have their interpretation accepted as the right one. You'll notice that in a few days, all of those disputations are going to be meaningless because there's one interpretation that's correct and all the rest are going to fall away. But up until that point, they're disputing. Even the believers, they're disputing among themselves. What does all this mean? One of the main lessons that Jesus is going to teach uh, as when, he, when he finally arrives, they've got a long way to go before he gets there, but when Jesus comes, he's going to say, it is not my will that men should contend with anger one with another, but it behold is my doctrine that such things should pass away or should be done away. So Jesus doesn't want, he doesn't want doubtings, but disputations are actually people who believe in Jesus and acting counter to the will of Jesus. So I, I just think it's really interesting that verse 4 should mention both of those things. Now, when Samuel the Lamanite, I didn't really go into the word gospel when Samuel the Lamanite, when we did the lesson on Samuel the Lamanite, but it was very appropriate then too. So if you remember, the messenger is the message. And how they treated Samuel the Lamanite, what did they do? They, they, first they kicked him out, and then when he showed himself on the wall, they rejected his message and they rejected him simultaneously. They were not listening to him and they were also trying to kill him by shooting arrows or, fling, or slinging stones at him. So the messenger was the message at that time. They rejected Samuel and they rejected the gospel. And so in verse 5, the storm comes upon them. Uh, in verse 5 it says, There arose a great storm, such an one as never had been known. There was also a great and terrible tempest. Now it's interesting, a storm and also a tempest, and there was terrible thunder, insomuch that it did shake the whole earth. Now think about a pre-scientific people. How are they going to describe the rumblings of an earthquake, right? They're going to use the same word that they have for any natural sound that is rumbling and loud, which is thunder. So they don't know the difference between the sound of the earth shaking, or I'm not saying they don't know the difference, they couldn't tell the difference, but there would be no reason for them to make up an entire new word when they already have a word that perfectly describes what they're experiencing. So, the storm and the tempest, earthquake and lightning, thunder. And as we all know from the last several years, uh, earthquakes can cause floods as well. They can cause tsunamis and lightning and great storms and winds. Hurricanes can also bring floods and great rains can also bring floods. So there's three possible causes for floods. Lightning's causing fires. Earthquakes causing not only the destruction of building, but the swallowing up of entire cities and the raising of mountains where cities had been. So this is not just a storm, but it's a storm and a tempest. And if they had a stronger word, they would use it. This is destruction of every sort, nature rebelling against the denizens that live on its surface. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, as, we, as the lesson progresses. Uh, it says it gives the an account of the fate of certain cities. The city of Moroni did sink into the depths of the sea. Uh, in verse 9 and in verse 10, the earth was carried up on the city of Moroniha. Oh, and I skip verse 8. The city of Zarahemla did take fire. So fire, flood, and earthquake are the three fates that cities run into. 
But it wasn't just these methods of destruction that was so terrible. It was that during all of this, no one could see anything. Now, the storm is described, the earthquake, the lightnings, the thunderings, the floods, all of that is described as taking place within the space of about three hours. And then the wailings are heard because then the, the rumbling stops, the, perhaps the lightning stops, who knows. But at that point, then everyone realizes, hey, it wasn't just the, uh, the darkness of a, a severe thunderstorm. This darkness isn't going away. I can't see anything. Now, I've heard a number of theories about what this darkness was. How could a darkness be so severe that you couldn't see anything? Uh, you couldn't even light a fire if you had dry wood. And it says here in uh, chapter 8 that you could feel, they could feel the darkness. Uh, in verse 20, it came to pass that there was thick darkness upon all the face of the land, insomuch that the inhabitants thereof, who had not fallen, could feel the vapor of darkness. Uh, now, one obvious interpretation is that it's fog. There is a thick, thick fog that is so wet that no fire can be kindled. And uh, I want to, I've, I've often wondered what a modern day occurrence of the, or a modern day rep repetition of this occurrence would look like because of our electric devices. Now, they don't need to be uh, ignited the same way a fire does. And so the question I've, I've wondered about was would a flashlight have worked? Uh, would you be able to turn on your phone? Would you be able to? Uh, turn on the light switch and have that work if your electricity was on. But if you had a, a battery-powered light, would any of those work? And uh, I think it's a really good question because the light of the world had been taken away, and then God did what was necessary to make it so that nobody had any light, so that the physical reality could match the spiritual one. And I kind of think that if God were to do this again, he would take steps, whatever steps were required, to make our physical reality match the spiritual one. I have no scientific basis for that, obviously, and I do believe that this was probably uh, a, a fog, a very humid condition, and hum uh, fog is beyond humidity because not only it is the air have the maximum amount, amount of water vapor in it, but it also has suspended droplets of actual liquid water that are carried around in the air. And so it's not only evaporated water or steam or water vapor in the air, but it's actual water in the air. And that would explain the lack of the ability of anyone to kindle any sort of fire. That would be sufficient for explaining it. It could be that there was more going on, that God has an additional means of preventing light. But even if a light were kindled, that, that fog, that thick, thick fog, and possibly mixed with volcanic ash and other dust blown about by strong winds, uh, would be enough to obscure it within just a few feet of anybody having it. So this is the condition that they're in. And you can imagine, uh, recently we had a, a power outage in Salt Lake. Uh, a little bit further back, we also had a minor earthquake. And, uh, you know, I can imagine having both of those things happen at once. And then uh, even the minor, you know, minor, minor, I'm, I'm not trying to complain and, and say that we had it really bad around here, but um, when the winds were powerful, as powerful as a hurricane here in Salt Lake, which does not happen very often, and many trees were downed. And if there had been darkness covering the entire city for the space of three days, people would have been very distressed, especially, you know, without modern conveniences like a phone that would work. 
No way to get in touch with anyone to find out what had happened. How bad is it? The, the suffering would have been intense just from the uncertainty alone. Now, couple that with an actual earthquake which destroyed everything, which with floods, with strong winds, with rain, with thunderings which caused fires. People are dead. They've been crushed by falling buildings. They've been burned by fire. They're wounded. They're trapped. Uh, this is the, the absolute height of distress and the worst that human existence can get. There is danger on every turn. There is no comfort. There is no certainty. The Nephites find themselves in exactly the situation that Helaman II described to his sons when he said, The devil shall surround you with this whirlwind, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, and all of his darts of the adversary will come upon you. And there's no way to survive that sort of day, except you are built upon the rock of your Redeemer. Now, it may be that Helaman had had a vision of the suffering that was awaiting those who failed to accept Christ. But this is, uh, that was, at that time, it was a metaphor, and now the metaphor has come true. It's no longer a metaphor about what it's like not to accept Christ. It is the reality, is the physical reality of what it's like when the influence of Christ is removed from the world. Thousands of years before this time, uh, another prophet had seen this day, and if we look in Moses chapter 7, the, this account begins in verse 48. Well, the, the account of this particular day begins in verse 48. It came to pass that Enoch looked upon the earth, and he heard a voice from the bowels thereof, saying, Woe, woe is me, the mother of men. I am pained, I am weary, because of the wickedness of my children. When shall I rest and be cleansed from the filthiness which has gone forth out of me? When will my Creator sanctify me? that I may rest, and a righteousness for a season abide upon my face. And when Enoch heard the earth mourn, he wept, and cried unto the Lord, saying, O Lord, wilt thou not have compassion upon the earth? Now it's interesting that Enoch could see all the people as well, but the suffering of the earth overrode all of the all of the considerations about how much people are going to have to go through for the earth to be cleansed. That was the perspective of a prophet who was privileged enough to witness that. Skipping forward a bit into verse 54, Enoch cried unto the Lord, saying, When the Son of Man cometh in the flesh, shall the earth rest? I pray thee, show me these things. And the Lord said unto Enoch, Look, and he looked, and beheld the Son of Man lifted up upon the cross, after the manner of men, and he heard a loud voice, and the heavens were veiled, and all the creations of God mourned, and the earth groaned, and the rocks were rent, and the saints arose and were crowned at the right hand of the Son of Man with crowns of glory. And even that wasn't the end. Enoch keeps asking, will the earth rest? And the Lord said unto Enoch, now we've skipped all the way to verse 60, as I live, even so will I come in the last days, in the days of wickedness and vengeance, to fulfill the oath which I have made unto you concerning the children of Noah, and the day shall come that the earth shall rest. But before that day, the heavens shall be darkened, a veil of darkness shall cover the earth, and the heavens shall shake, and also the earth, and great tribulations shall be among the children of men. But my people will I preserve, and righteousness will I send down out of heaven, and truth will I send forth out of the earth. So this, this is an amazing prophecy, and it's also not 100% clear whether it has a dual fulfillment, whether part of it is uh, pertaining to the first coming of Christ and part of it to the second. But I encourage you to read that latter part of Moses chapter 7, because it's talking a lot about these, these events, and especially when he says, A veil of darkness shall cover the earth. 
that was unquestionably the fulfillment of the prophecy that God gave to Enoch when he looked forward and saw this day, the groanings of the earth. And in fact, the earth was somewhat anthropomorphized when uh, Enoch witnesses it and, and the, the earth is a woman and says, I am pained, I am weary, the mother of men, because of the wickedness of my children. So the earth itself, and uh, God, God makes reference to this in his uh, revelation now to the children of Nephi. In chapter 9, he starts talking to them. And he says, the earth is calling out to me. I had to hide your sins from before my face. So that is why, city of Zarahemla, that is why I have burned you down. That's, that is why, city of Moroni, that I have caused a flood to come in upon you. That is why, city of Moroniah, that I have caused the earth to cover you up. And this is a voice that everyone hears simultane- simultaneously. Now, obviously, it's a miracle uh, a terrible miracle, but a miracle that all of this destruction has come upon people. And now here's a second miracle, this voice telling them all the reasons for the great destruction. And over and over again, this voice describes the reasons why this destruction has come upon them. If we skip forward, we're now in 3 Nephi chapter 9. If we skip to verse 7, uh, God says to these people, this is the voice of God they're hearing, we can presume, because it says, uh, I have caused this to happen. And in verse 7, it says, uh, The city of Jerusalem and the inhabitants thereof, waters have I caused to come up in the stead thereof, to hide their wickedness and abominations before my face, that the blood of the prophets and the saints shall not come up any more to me against them. Now, I read, I read that so carefully because it's repeated over and over again throughout this entire chapter. These are the two reasons why God has caused this great destruction to come upon everyone. First of all, to hide their wickedness and abominations from before his face. God can't sit and watch this all day long. He has to soothe the suffering earth who is crying, woe, woe unto me because of the abominations that are uh, of my children that live upon me. And secondly, that the blood of the prophets and the saints shall not come up any more unto me against them. There's something about innocent blood uh, it, it Perhaps it's always a metaphor, but perhaps there is actually something that when it is shed on the earth, the earth suffers, and the earth cries up unto God, and God has to listen. The earth is, the, is one of those creations mentioned in uh, the book of Helaman. If you remember in Helaman chapter 12, that Mormon talked about how great was the nothingness of men because they don't listen to God, and, and men are below the dust of the earth because the dust of the earth and all of the creations on the earth, they all listen to God. And so when the earth cries up unto God, look at this innocent blood that has been shed upon me and now it's soaked into my dust that, God, will you please cleanse me from this iniquity? God has to listen to the earth because the earth has been obedient. When God commands, the earth does whatever God says. And men are different than that. Men and women, we actually disobey God. And so these are the reasons that God is giving me, which is you're causing suffering to all of my creations when you sin. It's not just yourselves that you're hurting, but you're hurting every single other thing that I've created. Your iniquity ripples outwards, and I have to correct it. That I can uh, withhold my hand as long as there are righteous people among you. But as soon as you react, reject all righteousness, then my wrath can no longer be contained. I have, to, I have to both hide your iniquity and I have to stop this cry of the blood of righteous people from coming up to me. Those two things are my priority. Now, a little later in chapter 9, 
this voice finally identifies himself. He says in verse 15, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I created the heavens and the earth and all things that in them are. I was with the Father from the beginning. I am in the Father and the Father in me, and in me hath the Father glorified his name. Now, this is before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we can presume that Jesus is even now at this time among the spirits in the spirit world, as we learn in the section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants, instituting the great missionary work that will occur among the spirits of the dead. But at the same time, he is speaking to those who are alive in the land of Nephi with his voice only. And because he's dead, they can't see him. Because he's dead, the light has been taken away and they can't see anything. The gospel is out of their lives and therefore there's nothing to look at. If they can't behold their God, they can't behold anything at all. And the message of Jesus, the purpose of his message is that these people should repent. In verse 13, he says, All all ye that are spared because you were more righteous than those who've been destroyed, you now must return unto me and repent that I can heal you. So Jesus is trying to say, just because you've been spared, look, there is so much wickedness. I, I spared everyone that I could, but you've all got to repent. You've all got to come unto me. Now, everyone is so taken aback. They are so astounded by this, this message from Jesus Christ. They've all heard the voice of God speaking to them from out of the darkness that there's finally silence, the weeping and wailing that they'd been hearing ever since the destruction ended is over and they're all just sitting and thinking, wow, did we really just hear God himself talking to us and telling us why he had destroyed everything? Uh, And so then there's many hours of silence and then Jesus speaks again. The voice returns and that this brings us into chapter 10. And in this chapter, Jesus uses this marvelous uh, analogy of the hen gathering her chicks. This is Isaiah language. Now, Isaiah talked many times about God gathering Jehovah, gathering her chickens as a, or gathering her, gathering the children of Israel as a hen gathers her chickens, if only the people of Israel would listen. And here he says it three ways. Number one, how many times have I gathered you as a hen gathers her chickens? Number two, how many times would I have, but you wouldn't? And number three, how many times will I? Am I still able to do it? So it's pointing out the difference in outcome for the house of Israel is entirely due to their own choice. In the past, I have gathered you, and there are times when I would have gathered you. And in the future, I will, if you will. You now see exactly where the road leads if you will not get under my wings. My wings can shelter you from the storm, from the consequences of wickedness, if you will repent and get under these wings. The wings of God are used throughout the Old Testament as a symbol of protection. In fact, the last chapter of the Old Testament speaks about God arising to succor and save and redeem the house of Israel with healing in his wings. And here in chapter 10, that is the message. I will arise and heal you, with he- or I will rise and redeem you with healing in my wings if you will choose to get under them. This shelter is here for you to take advantage of, but if you will not choose it, then all of the promises that I've made, they will be fulfilled. But until that time, your houses will be desolate. So you, the surviving Nephites, you exist in this place that is entirely of your own determination, and you get to pick what what happens next. And then the weeping and howling begins. And so they spend the rest of their three days mourning for what has happened, worried about their fate, uh, because 
they still don't understand that Jesus really will heal them. They're still afraid. They don't, they don't get that Jesus is promising to bring them back and gather them if they will change. I want to read verse 14. We're now in 3 Nephi chapter 10. And now whoso readeth, let him understand. He that hath the scriptures, let him search them. And see and behold, if all these deaths and destructions by fire and by smoke and by tempests and by whirlwinds and by the opening of the earth to receive them, and all these things are not unto the fulfilling of the prophecies of many of the holy prophets. So Mormon here is making the important point that the Nephites had prophets speaking directly to them and giving them the consequences of continued sin. And uh, to Lee's point, our question that we had at the beginning of the hour, we had the point that the, the prophets that came during the time of the Nephites, so many of them had the Nephites as their audience. And the Nephites, of necessity, because of the mercy of God, the universal mercy of God, were given plenty of warning. They Each of them knew the consequences for doing the things that they had done, and yet they refused to repent, to return to God, to listen to the prophets, and in fact, they killed the prophets in an unjustified way. If you remember the thing, the event that triggered the, the, the disintegration of all of Nephite government and society was that these government functionaries were executing the prophets illegally. And then when the, the chief judge over all the land tried to put them to justice, bring them to justice, then everyone rebelled. And this was the triggering event which destroyed their legal framework and their equality. And this is a perfect example of how to act if you want God to be forced to hide your wickedness from before his face, right? This is the the exact way to get God to send destruction upon the earth. God's destruction doesn't come when people act wickedly. It comes when society as a whole sanctions that wickedness. So it doesn't come because someone murders someone else. It comes when the government, the the government is the voice of society, right? It comes when the government says, oh, you murdered someone? Well, we're going to let that slide. Uh, People are not equal, in fact, before the law. Your life doesn't mean as much as someone else who's part of our secret society. It was that sort of injustice, that sort of wickedness that forced God to intervene because righteous people then were purged and could not could no longer remain righteous without being persecuted. And that's why the city of Jacobugath, the most wicked city, it says uh, in, in 3 Nephi chapter 9, verse 9, behold, that great city, Jacobugath, I don't, even, I don't know how to say it. I, I'm not always the, the best at uh, Book of Mormon pronunciation. My, my wife brought up to me that I had called Payankai, uh, one of the sons of Pacubene, or one of the sons of Pahoran, sorry. Uh, I'd called him Ponchi, and uh, you know there were two A's there, so I sort of slurred it along, and she said, "No, that's Payankai," and I felt a little sheepish. So uh, I'm not always the best at Book of Mormon pronunciation, but the great city Jacobugath, which was inhabited by the people of King Jacob, so this was the the leader of the Gadiantans, have I caused to be burned with fire because of their sins and their wickedness, which was above all the wickedness of the whole earth, because of their secret murders and combinations. For it was they that did destroy the peace of my people and the government of the land. Therefore, I did cause them to be burned, to destroy them from before my face, that the blood of the prophets and the saints, again, that this blood should not come up unto me anymore against them. 
So this is the this is the behavior that forces God to intervene and not in a way that any of us want in our lives. We each of us have a duty to see that our societies don't act this way, right? Because we live in lands, hopefully many of us at least, most of us, live in lands where it's government by the people, it's the people's representatives that enact the laws. If those laws are not just, then God's wrath comes upon us. If we sanction the murder of some, if we overlook wickedness and don't provide justice, then God has to provide his own justice because the earth is crying unto God and saying, woe is me because of the wickedness of people on my face. Now, at the end of chapter 10, we learned something. I think for, for some of you, it might be news, and that is that it wasn't immediately after this, this darkness dispersed that Jesus Christ uh, appeared. So perhaps this isn't uh, quite a revelation for, for most of you, but some of you may have thought, Jesus appeared immediately after this darkness dispersed. But here we read in 3510 verse 18, It came to pass that in the ending of the thirty and fourth year, behold, I will show unto you that the people of Nephi, who were spared, and also those who had been called Lamanites, uh, did have great favors shown unto them and great blessings poured out upon their heads, insomuch that soon after the ascension of Christ into heaven did he truly manifest himself unto them. Now remember, the storm came on the fourth day of the first month of the thirty-fourth year. And then Jesus Christ appeared to them towards the ending of the 30 and 4th year. So it was several months later, almost 12 months later, uh, perhaps perhaps as few as 10 months, but it's in the ending of the uh, 34th year. So it's several months after all this destruction, so perhaps some of the rebuilding efforts have begun, but there's something interesting that happens, and that is that there's a great multitude gathered together around the temple which was in the land Bountiful. Now, we can presume a couple of things. Number one, uh, it's interesting that there was a temple there. Uh, in, in the land of ancient Israel, there was only one temple, and it was in Jerusalem. So if the Nephites lived in an analogous way, then there would have been one temple. It was in Zarahemla. The, if that was the case, now I'm not saying that was the case, but if that was the case, then this means that they hopped right to it, and as soon as this darkness dispersed, they rebuilt a temple in the land Bountiful, which was presumably... Uh, one of the least destroyed places. So perhaps some of the city was left and they figured that was the best place for us to rebuild. If it was the case that they had several temples, then Bountiful was the place that God spared. Uh, Perhaps that there was some destruction there, but enough that they could quickly rebuild. So within the time of 10 months, they could have a temple functioning again. And it may be that Jesus delayed his visit to the Nephites. This is just this is just occurring to me, right? This is just the spirit saying, you know, think about this. I don't know whether it's true, but it may be that Jesus waited to appear to them until they had a temple working, until he had a home, until he had a uh, some ground that was worthy for him upon which he could set his feet. He could not appear to them. Uh, this, the other thing is that this is where the people were gathered. So it wasn't as though they immediately all went to the temple and said, wow, we've got to gather at the temple because there's been this terrible destruction, and then we'll see what happens tomorrow. No, they gathered at the temple, and then they gathered at the temple again, and then they did that every day for 10 months, and finally Jesus showed himself. So that's what's interesting to me is that it was not instant, and yet there was quite a multitude there to receive him when he came. They had changed their hearts to the extent that they were making now, they were making God a priority in their lives, and they were showing themselves at the temple regularly. 
Now, we around the world have experienced uh, an extended period of time where we also have had temples unavailable to us. And it may be that God has some things to reveal to us. When we again have a temple available, then we can invite him perhaps in a new way. I don't know whether this is a parallel or not. I do think that the best way to treat the lesson of Third Nephi for us today is not to say Jesus Christ is coming tomorrow, we have to be ready for this destruction. The, the best way to treat the scriptures is to say everything that happened physically for them is happening spiritually for us. How can I recognize it? So these, the, for example, uh, shaking, the shaking of the earth. Uh, what is happening to people? Are they being shaken in their faith? The burning, right? The burning of fire. Is, is burning happening? Are people being, have their faith seared from them? I want you to think about that question as we read the account of what happens in chapter 11. It came to pass while they were thus conversing with one another. They're talking about Jesus Christ of whom the sign had been given, right? And while they're thus conversing with one another, they heard a voice as if it came out of heaven and they cast their eyes round about for they understood not the voice which they heard. It was not a harsh voice, neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, And notwithstanding it being a small voice, it did pierce them that did hear it to the very center, insomuch that there was no part of their frame that it did not cause to quake. Yea, it did pierce them to the very soul and did cause their hearts to burn. Interesting, because what had just happened with their cities is now happening to their hearts, to their spirits. God is doing to them spiritually what he has done to their cities, to their world physically. He is causing them to quake and to burn. In verse 4, again, it came to pass that again they heard the voice, and they understood it not. And again the third time they heard the voice, and they did open their ears to hear it. And their eyes were towards the sound thereof, and they did look steadfastly towards heaven from whence the sound came. And behold, the third time they did understand the voice which they heard. So uh, this th- rule of three as far as Revelation goes, just want to talk a little bit about it. You might remember the story of Samuel. And twice he got up in the night, God spoke to him, and he got up and he went to Eli and he said, you called me? And he says, no, I didn't call you, go back to sleep. No, I didn't call you, go back to sleep. And the third time, Eli, this judge in Israel, he realized Samuel is being called by God. So he, Or the second time. And so he says, the third time, Samuel, go, go back to sleep. And when God calls to you, say... Uh, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And that's how Samuel responded. Uh, I had the opportunity to attend a face-to-face event last Sunday where Elder Rasban and his wife were speaking. And she related the story of a revelation, a a very powerful prompting that came to her. Uh, She was walking onto a street. She put her foot on the street, and the Spirit said to her, Turn around and go back. And she thought, No, I'm late. I've got to hurry. I'm late for school. And so she continued forward. The prompting came again, but this time very strong. Turn around and go back. But she resisted it a second time. And the third time the prompting came, it said, run. It was very loud and very strong. And she was about to obey it when she was hit by a car that she hadn't previously seen. Now, she didn't go into too much details, and perhaps she's related this story elsewhere, and we could get more details about what happened to her as a result. But the point was that the Spirit uh, really does give us a choice, and we can, our choices have real consequences. 
We can fail to listen, but then we cannot fail to bear the rewards of not listening. So three times it took the Nephites to hear this voice. And I just wanted to point out for us, uh, we can change our minds and become the kind of people who listen on the first or second time. And that would be so much better for us. Uh, there's a heartbreaking story, you've all heard it, of President Monson hearing the, boy, the voice of the Spirit speak to him in a meeting where it said, go visit this friend of yours. You've been given a prompting that, he's, that he needs a visit from you. Now's the time. And President Monson is the church, he's the visiting authority in the middle of a state conference. He can't just pick up and walk out, he thinks. What is everyone going to think if I leave in the middle of this meeting? But the Spirit told him to do exactly that. And so then uh, he, he resists it, and he hears it again. And he thinks, okay, you know what I'll do is I will wait until uh, right before the end of the meeting, and then I'll, I'll just duck out a little bit early. And so he does that, and then he hurries over, and he has missed the death of this good friend of his who was asking for him before he died. And he resolved at that moment, I'm never again going to make the Spirit try and try and try with me. I'm going to listen the first time. Now, obviously, that is the kind of attitude that leads a person to become the prophet. So this point came up for me again as I was reading this. It takes him three times to hear this, and it's only when they're stead- looking steadfastly towards heaven and their eyes are on the, the place where they think the sound is coming from, and then they hear it. And they, uh, they hear, this is now, before they heard the voice of Jesus, this is now the voice of God the Father, who rarely, rarely appears in Scripture. And usually the message of God, uh, in fact, the only message I can think of when God the Father speaks in Scripture is to introduce his Son. Now, that message is important enough that it requires all of the Nephites' concentration in order to understand it. And only when they understand it do they finally see Jesus. He's descending out of heaven clothed in a white robe, And he introduces himself as Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified, shall come into the world. Behold, I am the light and the life of the world. Now, this is a message that they cannot fail to receive. They understand exactly what he means when he says, I am the light and the life of the world. They have just witnessed the darkness and death that comes when Jesus Christ is gone from the world. And it's only by the fact that Jesus is now back in the world that they are witnessing each other, that they're speaking with each other, they've been able to meet in the land of Bountiful, perhaps repair the temple, but in any case, worship there, repent. It is because Jesus Christ is alive again that these opportunities are available to them. There is no people who have ever known this message that Jesus is the light and life of the world better than these Nephites. And now he says it explicitly. And I imagine that when he put words to the knowledge that has been slowly growing within them, that they all felt the truth of it. Then Jesus goes on to bear testimony of his obedience before the Father. And there's a, there's a talk I want to share with you. This is a Brigham Young University address by Jeffrey R. Holland given when he was the president of that university. And he talks about how Uh, Jesus Christ, after he appears to the Nephites, he says, I am the light and life of the world. I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me, and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world. I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. 
And then uh, President Holland says, that's it, just a few lines, 52 words. And when Jesus had spoken these words, the whole multitude fell to the earth. This introductory utterance from the resurrected Son of God constitutes my only text today. I have thought very often about this moment in Nephite history. I cannot think it either accident or mere whimsy that the good shepherd in his newly exalted state, appearing to a most significant segment of his flock, chooses first to speak of his obedience, his deference, his loyalty, and loving submission to his father. In an initial and profound moment of spellbinding wonder, when surely he had the attention of every man, woman, and child, as far as the eye could see, his submission to his father is the first and most important thing he wishes us to know about himself. Frankly, I am a bit haunted by the thought that this is the first and most important thing he may want to know about us when we meet him one day in similar fashion. Did we obey, even if it was painful? Did we submit, even if the cup was bitter indeed? Did we yield to a vision higher and holier than our own, even when we may have seen no vision in it at all? Uh, Again, the title of this talk is The Will of the Father by Jeffrey R. Holland. You can look that up on speeches.byu.edu. So that's uh, an important lesson to take from this appearance of Jesus Christ to the Nephites, is that the first thing that he brings up is how obedient he was to the Father and how humble he is before the will of the Father. Now, the Nephites have properly prostrated themselves on the ground in an attitude of worship. And Jesus says, Arise and come forth unto me that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth, and have been slain for the sins of the world. I want to read, uh, there's a particular phrase in verse 15. Uh, I won't read the whole verse, but the multitude went forth, they thrust their hands into his side, it said, and they felt the prints of the nails, and then it says they going forth one by one until they had all gone forth. Now Jesus, there were thousands of people here. Jesus spent a long time allowing everyone to come and see, and I don't imagine anybody wanted to be anywhere else, even when uh, it wasn't their turn. But watching this, everyone else have this experience with Jesus, their Savior, and Jesus did it with all of them one by one, allowed them to witness the fact that he was their Savior and their Redeemer. And this reminds me of a passage in Luke chapter 2. So if you you read in Luke chapter 2 about the birth of Jesus, and then after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, they take him to the temple. And the man Simeon, this this man who's a prophet, he's he's been given the promise that he will not have to uh, taste of death before he sees the Lord's Christ. And so then he does get to see Jesus, and he knows it's him. But then in verse 28, it says, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. So his life, the purpose of his life, the meaning of his life was fulfilled when he saw Jesus. But then he took the opportunity to go and touch him. Jesus comes to each of us. And uh, the message here is unequivocal. It's unmistakable that he knows each of us, that he cares about each of us so much that Time is not a factor for Jesus in uh, how much he's willing to give to us. He is willing to be with us, walk with us, and spend time with us. Now, in a group like this, uh, Jesus wasn't able to take everyone simultaneously and, and let them come up and see simultaneously. However, I do believe that when we are alone, Jesus can simultaneously 
be with all of us. His mind, his attention can be with all of us. Though he has a physical body and therefore is in one place, his consciousness, his awareness, his care, his love are everywhere at all times. And he, he knows every particle and loves every particle of this universe. And that includes the, the, all of the particles that make up you and me, and especially the consciousness, our awareness, our memories, everything that makes me me and everything that makes you you. He knows it. He loves it. He has uh, a vast history of experience with you and with me where he spent time with each of us and has taught us many things. And he knows what will come for each of us. So never doubt that Jesus Christ will take all of us, will take each of you one by one when the day comes. And before that day comes, uh, it's not just when he appears, but also when we strive to follow him, he takes us one by one. This is such a powerful lesson that we find here in 3 Nephi chapter 11. It's, it's echoed elsewhere in the scriptures as we, as we discussed, but it is so powerful here. And the Nephites have that same reaction. They say, Hosanna, which means, save, we pray. Blessed be the name of the Most High God. And they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. Now, worship is an interesting word. If you look up the origins of the word worship, it actually means to kiss the ground or to do reverence to the ground upon which a leader, a king, has walked. Worship is, if, if the point of the law of Mosiah was to place all men and women on an equal footing, then the point of the word of worship is to put yourself below someone else. And in the case of Jesus, this is entirely appropriate. Jesus doesn't say to everyone, okay, stop, you know, it's okay, put all glory to the Father. What he says is, uh, Nephi, come up and join me up here on the, you know, in front of everyone. And Nephi comes forward and kisses his feet. Again, doing him the this act of ultimate respect. And all of this worship attitude, this this worship behavior, falling on the ground, uh, kissing the kissing the feet of Jesus, the the actions we see in the New Testament of washing the feet of Jesus with tears and with hair, all of these are appropriate for the Son of God because of who he is and because of the things that he's done. Uh, a worshipful attitude is the only appropriate response. And no one knew this better than the prophet or the man who would become the prophet. Uh, at that time, there was probably several prophets, and Nephi became the prophet when uh, Christ chose him as his chief apostle. And the first thing Jesus taught was baptism. So it was repentance. It was faith and repentance and baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost. The first four principles and ordinances of the gospel that we get from the fourth article of faith. That was what Jesus taught here in chapter 11. Uh, in verse 22, I want to read this. Remember, we talked earlier about doubtings and disputations that preceded this storm. In verse 22, says, the Lord called others and said unto them likewise, and he gave unto them power to baptize. And he said unto them, on this wise shall ye baptize, and there shall be no disputations among you. So doubts are the things that happen, again, outside the people of God. Disputations are the things that happen within the people of God. Neither are appropriate. Skipping to verse 28, According as I have commanded you, thus shall you baptize, and there shall be no disputations among you, as there hath hitherto been. Neither shall there be disputations among you concerning the points of my doctrine, as there have hitherto been. For, be, for verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention 
is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention, and he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger, one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine to stir up the hearts of men with anger one with, against another, but this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away. And what that tells me is that, not that God doesn't want us to get it right, the the points of our worship. He, he does care that we get it right. Uh, I guess the point would be that until we can get it right, that we have to be very, very patient with one another that it is of crucial importance that we forgive each other for not being perfect. Because <laughs> this, is just, this is just so central to his message that there's no escaping it. He doesn't want us to dispute. We both believe, and therefore you... Uh, there's an old joke about um, a, ma- a man in, who meets a woman, and they're perfect for each other. They, they're attracted to each other, and they're sitting on the edge of this cliff together and they're looking down over the view and enjoying the time together and they realize they have so much in common. They believe in Jesus and they believe in uh, all of the same things and so they start talking and I don't know, <laughs> I wish I knew the, the details of the joke but uh, the point is they, the, the girl asks this guy question after question. Oh, you believe in Jesus. That's wonderful. Are you, you know, oh, you're a Baptist. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, you believe in this and then she says, now do you believe in the uh, the the teachings of this man from 1904 or the ones from 1906? And he says, oh yeah, the 1906. And then she reaches up and pushes him off the cliff. <laughs> and, so, and it's a joke because, it's a funny joke because uh, people who are so similar and you're reading this thinking, I've never heard of any of those things that she's talking about, uh, but I'm glad that they share them and they can be together. And then one small difference is enough and it sets her off and she realizes she hates this man rather than loves him. Uh, they were going to be perfect for each other, but instead she pushes them off the cliff. And the point is, we need to be so patient with each other and so forgiving that it's not that God doesn't want us to be correct, but somehow on the way to correctness, we have to be also unified. We have to be merciful towards each other, and we have to be humble enough to realize that disputations are... This was Christ's first message, one of his first messages was, disputations, it's more important for me to call you out for disputations than it is for me to teach you each and every detail that you have to be perfect in right now. While you're learning all of the things, you should not have disputations among you. So that should, we should let that doctrine sink in. Uh, Again, he says in verse 37, again, I say unto you, you must repent and become as a little child and be baptized in my name. So all of these things are super important. Jesus teaches the first four principles and ordinances of the gospel. He teaches that we shouldn't have disputations among us. And he shares that building upon these things is like building upon a rock, a solid foundation. Uh, These Nephites would have had recent reason to experience the importance of building on a solid foundation. They understood what it meant from Helaman 5.12 when when Satan will send forth his mighty whirlwinds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, and all of the fury of hell shall beat upon you, it shall have no power to drag you down to that gulf of misery and endless woe because of that foundation upon which ye are built. And he says, if you will build on my doctrine, then you are building upon my rock. And if you are building upon anything else, you're building on a sandy foundation. They all they all would understand how important it is that their foundation be secure and firm and steadfast. The final thing that Jesus teaches is, go forth unto this people and declare the words which I have spoken to the end of the earth. 
Now, we've talked about the destructions that accompanied the death of Jesus Christ. We've talked about the first lesson of Jesus, and I want to, uh, as the end of our lesson, I want to go back and talk about something from the very beginning. So, Third uh, Nephi chapter 8, verse 1. Again, talking about the timing around this storm, but it says something interesting. Now, can we trust the record that was left to us? Well, we believe that we can because it was a just man who kept the record. He did many miracles in the name of Jesus, and there was never not any man who could do a miracle in the name of Jesus save he were, what? Not clean, not clean of iniquity, but cleansed every whit from his iniquity. Isn't it appropriate that when discussing what kind of person would bring us the message of Jesus and the message of uh, the sign that had been shown concerning his death, that this is someone who had done miracles in the name of Jesus after, not, not somebody who had no iniquity. He was a just man, but he had, it, it wasn't that he had no iniquity. It was that Jesus had taken this man and cleansed him. And this man was then the appropriate messenger to bring all of us the, the message of the death of Jesus Christ, this sign that would show us that finally he had performed the sacrifice that God had chosen him to do. So each and, all, all, each and every one of us can take that lesson, that Jesus does not expect us to be perfect. He doesn't expect us that we will not need him. In fact, that's his very message, that we don't need to be clean. We need to be cleansed. Jesus will heal us. The word in the New Testament, I've mentioned this concept before, but the word used for healed is the same word that is used for sinners and for those who are sick. Jesus will take us and fix us, both spiritually and physically. And that is the work of the master healer. That is the work of the Son of God, is to change our nature. And it is through this marvelous sacrifice, this atonement that he was willing to suffer because of his humility before the Father, that he has the power to do this. So let's allow Jesus to assume the role in our lives that he has in the plan of salvation, that of Redeemer. Let us invite him to heal us spiritually, change our nature, turn us from our sins, no longer uh, refuse to accept forgiveness, but let's let Jesus into our hearts and turn us into someone who would be a proper messenger for him, who could work miracles in the name of Jesus, who could be cleansed every whit from our iniquity in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.